0: good morning and welcome back to intrepid radio i am your host todd schnick today promises to be a really interesting conversation going to talk to a guy who's written a book about entrepreneurship now That doesn't sound too unique. We've done a lot of that on this show, but this gentleman did a pretty unique set of circumstances to research the data for this book, and that's going to be, in and of itself, a very interesting part of this conversation. Looking forward to get into it. We're joined today by Mike Glauser. He is an entrepreneur, business consultant, university professor, and author of a new book called Main Street Entrepreneur. Build your dream company, doing what you love where you live. He also is the executive director of the Jeffrey D. Clark Center for entrepreneurship. Mike, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Todd. It's great to be with you today.
0: It's great to have you. I appreciate you carving out some time to join me. If I know you, you're getting ready to plan another trip around the earth or something like that. (laughs) Uh, So grateful for the chance to to visit with you. Uh, Before we get into our conversation about the book, Main Street Entrepreneur, and how you researched the material for that that great book. Uh, take a few quick seconds. Tell us a bit about you, your background, and the work that you're doing at the Jeffrey D. Clark Center for Entrepreneurship.
1: Great. Thank you. Yeah, I, I fell in love with the study of organizations when I was a student in college for some reason. I thought it was really fascinating to be able to bring people together, create common objectives and goals, create a great place to work, and create a an organization that maybe was the envy of an industry. So that whole idea of building organizations and leading organizations was quite fascinating to me. And so I went straight through school and ended up with a PhD in organizational studies when I was still in my 20s. And I got a job teaching at the University of North Carolina, and I walked into my first MBA class. And had a lot of bravado you know I put my name Dr. Glauser on the board and turned around and I was clearly the youngest guy in that room by probably 10 or 15 years <laughs> these, these were like executives you know from the furniture industry the insurance industry the tobacco industry and and I was this kid and uh, so I, I knew a lot about organizations from reading books but I really wanted to go out and see if I could practice what I was preaching and build organizations so I left the university And I was an entrepreneur for a number of years and have built uh, six companies and sold four of those companies. And then I wanted to go back to the university now that I had my, I'd earned my credentials. I had the academic credentials and I had the real world experience. And I was quite disappointed that what was being taught in the universities in the field of entrepreneurship was very theoretical, very academic. It did not reflect anything I had done as a, a real world entrepreneur. And so I decided that what I would do is kind of start at the beginning and become kind of an entrepreneurial anthropologist and go out in the field and really study what real entrepreneurs do to build companies from A to Z that succeed and what are the keys to success that those that succeed follow, that those that fail do not follow. And so that started kind of my career, um, gathering these histories of, of companies for more than a decade. I then went back to the university. Now I've built two centers for entrepreneurship and we use the real world cases that we collect all over the country to teach entrepreneurship. So students come into our program. They have to actually start and build a company while they're in the coursework. And so it's very practical. It's very hands on. uh, It's not academic. It's not theoretical. It's here are the keys to success. Here are the steps you take and you can do it. And We're going to help you do it. So that's kind of a real brief overview of of my background and what I'm doing right now. Outstanding. Well, look, what I normally do, Mike,
0: in a circumstance such as we're presented here is I will ask my guest, all right, well, why did the world need yet another book on how to be a better entrepreneur? I'm not necessarily gonna do that here because there's a different spin that I wanna go at with this on you. But before I do that, I'm intrigued by your commentary I mean shoot I've, I've heard for years that oh I don't want to listen to these people in academia because they've never actually done it. they've never actually been out in the real world and done something like this yeah they can they can spew theory from a business book but they but they've never actually ran a business and so it's, it's refreshing to be honest with you to talk to a guy who is in academia but but has has also been there I mean that's a, I almost I still feel that's pretty
1: rare I mean what's your take on that? Well, I was at a conference a few years ago of uh, entrepreneurship scholars who teach entrepreneurship at top universities around the country, and there were 30 of us there. And as we got to know each other better, only three of us had actually started and mm. built companies out of 30, and one of the workshops was you know, how to prove that you're able to teach entrepreneurship even though you've never done it that was one of the workshops. (laughs) So, you know, our staff, uh, Utah State, almost all of us have started companies and built companies and sold companies. Many of us have PhDs and academic credentials. Others have MBAs. But, you know, I think that business schools are becoming, there's pressure on business schools to become more practical and give people skills, day one skills you can use when you leave the university. And so I think we're seeing more and more people teaching the topic that have actually done it. Uh, now and i think it it just makes a big difference you combine the theory and research with the real world practice and you give students a great well-rounded education but as i mentioned our students have to actually uh, vet a number of business ideas and then they have to pick one that's the most feasible and they have to form their entity and they have to learn about intellectual property and they have to build teams and get a board and build a brand they have to actually do you know they don't they don't study the theory of entrepreneurship and then on the side go build a business they build a business while they're in school studying Mm. That's very exciting,
0: and you know, I'm I'm tired of hearing all the people saying, "Oh, well, a business a, a a business degree is useless these days." And and I, I understand why they feel that way, but but I'm tired of it, and I'm glad to hear from you that that that's that maybe that tide's beginning to change, and that's that's very very exciting. Another element that we're going to discuss here, which is which is important to our conversation, is yeah, you're not just writing a book, presenting a, a book about entrepreneurship and how to do that better, but you're also couching it in the context that there's a con- employment crisis uh, and and we're going to discuss that in a little more detail later on in the conversation and part of what your book is is a guide to prepare for that I will give you a chance obviously to discuss that the the most intriguing element however Mike to to the creation of this book and the lessons learned and taught from it is your research method <laughs> which is <laughs> which is a um, which Crazy, is you mean? pretty, well, I'm envious because uh, what a, what an exciting way to do it. I, I've cheated. I just interview cool guys on, on radio, and that's how I do it. But you did it a little bit differently. So tell us a story about uh, your bike ride across America and how that was foundational to your exploration and study of, of entrepreneurs all along the way.
1: Well, here's how I explain that, and I think it works pretty well. If you were going to study large corporations, corporate America, you'd get on airplanes, you'd fly into big cities, you'd... You know, get in a limousine. You'd go to chain hotels, chain restaurants, and uh, you'd go meet with the guys in the suits, and you'd hear the story. But if you're really going to study America, the men and women that are creating and building successful small businesses in towns all across America, you need a little bit different research methodology. You need to go to their cities. You need to visit their offices and their plants, and s- visit the mayor and see the post office and the school and and so we thought, you know, we want to do this slowly. And we really, really want to have this epic adventure of, of seeing America, those businesses that are, you know, under the radar that we never hear about. And yet, you know, more than half of us work for small businesses. We just don't give them a lot of attention. They're kind of slighted in the media. We write thousands of articles about Google and Facebook and the big gazelles. And so we thought, let's just do this by bicycle. Let's really see America and see American entrepreneurs, men and women, who are building small, satisfying companies that may do a million, two million, 10 million, but are employing 15 or 20 or 30 people. And basically, they're the backbone of America that we wanted to highlight that, that we think are being overlooked. You know, in the business schools, the top business schools and government, you know, business development centers, there's a real bias towards big business and scaling business and venture backed business and going public. And kind of that's held up as the gold standard. The reality is only about one half of 1% of the businesses in America ever get any venture funding. And of those, only about one out of 10 ever go public. And so when we talk about that as the gold standard, we're teaching students and people to do things that nobody does, that nobody can do. And so we thought, let's just go look at everyday men and women like me and you, and let's find a sample that looks like America, old, young, you know, male, female, manufacturing, services, technology, and let's collect all this data and see if we can celebrate these heroes that are creating these jobs for themselves and others and kind of find out how they do it. What are they doing?
0: Yeah, I love it. Well, the next time when you're getting ready to write the sequel, let me know because I want to go on that next bike ride. (laughs) I'm tired. Like you said, I'm tired of reading about Apple. I mean, it's a fascinating organization, and I am an Apple fan, and I use a lot of their products, and and you know I lo- I know a lot about them for the obvious reasons because there's a lot written about them, but I also want to know about Mel's Diner on Route 66 in Iowa or wherever the heck it is, you know, yeah. because that's what most of us that's what most of us are, and that's what most of us interact with on a day to day basis, and so so tell me more about the trip itself. I mean, talk about the training. I mean, this is a bike ride across the United States. This isn't you didn't ride across Utah. This is you went all the way across. the United States. I mean, did you plan this out and say, "All right, when we go through Southern Illinois, we're going to go see these ten companies," or did you stumble upon people
1: along the way? Tell us more about those little details. Well, the first thing we had to do is pick the route. We had to pick a safe route. We couldn't, didn't want to ride on freeways. We didn't want to ride through big cities. We didn't want to ride places that were not safe. And we found this phenomenal bike route across America. It's called the Trans America Bike Trail, and it's a bicycle highway. It's Highway seventy six. It was dedicated in 1976 to celebrate, you know, the bicentennial of our country, and it was purposely designed by a bunch of cyclists to highlight Main Street America and the beautiful, most beautiful scenery we have in our country. And there are over 100 cities on this route. And so, once we found the route that was safe and that had lots of, you know, cities and population, then that kind of dictated, you know, the research where we focused. So we took these 100 cities. And about half of them are growing significantly. They're they're growing very rapidly. People are moving out of the big cities, getting away from the smog, the pollution, the crime, the traffic. They're moving to these locations, and they're growing much faster than the U.S. population. And people are showing up in these cities and saying, I want this lifestyle. I want to live here. And then they have to say, okay, now what do I do to make a living? Right. Because there are no jobs in these places. They're not moving there because there are jobs there. And then they end up creating these regional and national and international companies. And so we had a research team that we looked at, you know, we scoured websites, we went to the chambers of commerce, we looked for articles, we looked in, you know, industry association magazines and publications. And we found hundreds of really, really just unbelievable smaller companies that are very successful. And then we kind of narrowed those down to make the sample look like America with a good variety of companies and types of entrepreneurs and so we had you know more than half of these companies we had appointments we had dates they were locked in we had a day to go visit with them to interview them to film them and then we found the other uh, group by going into a city and saying who else is really cool in this town who's the top entrepreneur here and So one entrepreneur would say, oh, you got to go see John. And John would say, oh, man, don't leave town until you see Sue. And so we picked up quite a few of them along the way just through networking with our appointments that we had made.
0: Yeah, that sounds fascinating. That process in and of itself would have been worth all this effort just to, because that's what I do, Mike, is I I spend my days talking to people such as that. And and it's a fascinating way to spend time, let alone when you're in the context of the journey that you are on and
1: the adventure that you are on. That's very, very cool. So how many people did you actually interview? We interviewed uh, at length a hundred entrepreneurs. We met wow. many more than that, but actually, we set up the camera and we filmed and interviewed. Uh, we have audio and video of you know nearly a hundred people that we met from uh, Oregon to Virginia.
0: Mm, very cool. So, what we're—I mean—we're going to talk about kind of the nine keys to success that you pulled out of all of these conversations. But before we go formally into that process, uh, what were some of the what were some of the big surprises that you learned? What were some of the uh, not-so-surprising things you learned? And, and any
1: really interesting, unique story here or there that we ought to know about? Well, if you like to cycle, you might find this interesting. The the training, if you don't like to cycle, you might find it boring. But I started with a base of 100 miles a week, which meant I did three bike rides a week of about 30, 35 miles. And once I felt real comfortable doing that and had that base, then we added about 50 miles A week per month so we went to 150 miles a week for a month and then 200 miles for a week and then 250 and we got up to about 300 miles a week before we left on this trip and that's about all we could do because you know we're busy we have jobs we're 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 uh, consulting and so on but when we actually started the bike ride now we're doing 600 miles a week oh wow and the first few weeks, boy, it was tough. We, our legs were sore, our backs were sore, our, you know, necks were sore, our rear ends were sore. We were just famished, eating everything—donuts and uh, <laughs> potato chips. And we saw food, we ate it. You know, we were burning five, six thousand calories a day. But the fascinating thing is, after a couple of weeks, our bodies totally adjusted to the demand we were putting on them, and we could ride a hundred miles every day, get up. Early and ride, by noon or one be done, and it was just easy. The body adjusted; it wasn't difficult. And in fact, the last four or five weeks was very joyful. And when we got to the east coast, uh, we felt like we could turn around and ride back to the west coast, no mm, problem. Yeah. So the so the body's an amazing thing. And the other thing it did is it it, it kind of like said the body says these guys are serious; they're going to do this to me every day, so I better recalibrate. And we started needing fewer and fewer calories to sustain a hundred mile bike ride so by the last few weeks we were just eating normal meals three meals a day like you would if you weren't riding 100 miles a day and we just all felt great so it's very doable it's a matter of training people say i could never do that and i say yeah you could do it you just have to train
0: right Right?
1: No, it's amazing
0: what we're capable of. If, if we, I'm not just talking about setting our mind to it. Obviously, you have to do that. But, but our bodies are amazing things. And 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 when you put demands on it, it's it's designed to, to take harsh environments and and, and harsh realities and, and and adapt to it. So that's that's, well, you could probably have done a whole book on that that alone. Do you talk about that at <laughs> all in
1: the book? A little bit, yeah. yeah. The, you know, when we wrote the book, my uh, agent and the publisher, we kind of had to talk through how much biking do you put in it versus entrepreneurship and, we kind of limited the biking, the trip across America to about 20% of the book. It's it's the epic ride across America that's the backdrop that teaches you the stories and the principles that you learn. So it's really – the goal was to write a business book that wasn't boring. It yeah. would be real interesting to read and engaging, somewhat like a novel. Yeah.
0: Well, Lord knows we need more of those. Good stuff. All right. Mike Glauser and I will return after this short break. We'll be right back.
2: This episode is brought to you by the new international bestselling book, Leadership Rigor. This groundbreaking book will turn everything you think you know about leadership upside down. Leadership Rigor explores how to achieve breakthrough performance and productivity through leading yourself, leading teams, and leading at the organizational level. Author Erica Piedler outlines for her readers how to become change-ready leaders. Change-ready leaders are capable of embracing challenges with agility and optimism because they have the tools, models, and language to assess, structure, and facilitate solutions. Leadership is a skill that can be learned and practiced. Take the rigor challenge and ask yourself, do you want to lead mindfully and skillfully? Or do you want to subject your teams and organizations to your unstructured thoughts and approaches? The choice is yours. Will you rigor it? You can purchase Leadership Rigor on Amazon or by visiting ericpetler.com.
0: All right. I am back with Mike Glauser, the author of a new book, Main Street Entrepreneur, Build Your Dream Company, Doing What You Love, Where You Live. So, Mike, I uh, alluded at the top of the show that you have talked a lot about this coming employment crisis. Uh, So walk us through what you mean by that and and why this book is is sort of a guide on preparing all of us to be ready for that, that coming reality.
1: Well, as I mentioned, one of the reasons we did this research is we wanted to go find everyday men and women who are the backbone of the American economy and are creating these businesses and creating jobs that we felt were slighted in the media. But probably a bigger reason is we are very concerned about this coming employment shift. I wouldn't call it a, a crisis necessarily, but it's a major shift in how we do work in this country. And there's a great deal of research that's been done over the last two or three years that shows that anything that can be automated is being automated and will be automated. And a very uh, strong study that came out of Oxford University shows that 47% of our current occupations will be gone by the end of the next decade. Wow. So just look around, things we see every day. You know, we have software replacing analysts and accountants. We have warehouse storage and retrieval systems replacing warehouse employees. We have uh, drones delivering medicine now and books. We have smart smart cars coming uh, to the market very quickly. We have uh, robots that have taken over manufacturing. Uh, It's interesting that we outsource all of our jobs to China. But the factory that makes the iPhone, uh, Foxconn factory, just laid off 60,000 Chinese employees and replaced them with robots. So it's not just happening in the U.S. It's happening all over the world. And a robot in manufacturing now costs about half of what it did 10 years ago, maybe 80, dollars $90,000. And it costs $4 an hour to operate. And they typically can replace 20 employees. And so people are, some people are very pessimistic. And they're saying our employment rate is going to rise dramatically and more of us are going to be out of work and there aren't going to be corporate jobs for us anymore. I'm a little more optimistic than that. We we've handled employment shifts in the past. We've gone from farming to manufacturing and now to an information economy and we will create, you know, new industries and new jobs, but there will be this gap, there'll be this gap where suddenly there just aren't as many jobs and the question of the future isn't going to be how do I go find a job? It's going to be how do I take control of my own life and create my own job and so we thought if we found these people that have chosen you know lifestyle and merged their livelihood with their lifestyle and they've created these jobs all across america in places where there are no jobs that they would be great role models for this new economy they would be the people we could look to and say hey here's how they're doing it and we can do the same thing yeah, no, and you're speaking
0: to a guy who started his own business almost a decade ago, and and I, I, we don't have to go into the details of why you might choose entrepreneurialism, other than the fact you might have no choice down the road, which is one of the things yeah. you contend. But but the freedom that comes with it, and kind of being your own boss and setting your own schedule and doing doing what you love, where you live, as you say. Uh, and look, I broadcast from uh, trade shows uh, that are you know that cover say the, the supply chain and manufacturing, and and I'm starting to see exhibits where they say, "Hey, buy two robots and get the third one free." I mean, this is becoming reality. <laughs> this is a situation where this is real. And if you're listening to this and you, you hear what Mike just said about robots. You're like, ah, yeah, 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 whatever. No, let me assure you that's real. So, Mike, let's shift then. So someone listening to this who maybe doesn't necessarily buy that and or can't fathom that kind of an existence. I want to be sure they're clear on the types of entrepreneurs that you're talking about. When you're on your bike journey across the country, what were some of the entrepreneurs doing that you mean what, what kind of work were they doing what I mean I, I've created a little media company for myself and and, and so I, I create digital stories that, that educate entertain and inform people about how to be in better in business and then how to enjoy and live better I, but that's just my that's this my corner of the earth what are what are some of the typical kinds of entrepreneurs that you saw on this trip? to Give us an example or two of what's out there.
1: Well, we had a great variety. We weren't just interviewing people that were selling, you know, hamburgers and haircuts. We, for example, in Sisters, Oregon, we met Benny and Julie Benson. They have a company called Energy Nearing. They're mechanical engineers and they design biogas power plants. Uh, they were living in L.A. They got really tired of living in the city and they moved to Sisters, Oregon, and. Of course now had to find something to do and so they found some customers and started designing these biogas power plants which was their expertise they had no problem doing that in a small town and then they realized that these clients of theirs had a hard time finding people to build the plants so then they launched a construction division so now they're designing the plants and building the plants and then they found their customers had a hard time operating the output of these plants so they developed a suite of software to monitor the plants from this little town in, in Oregon Sisters Oregon so they provide a complete turnkey solution of designing the plant building the plant and monitoring the plant and they were flying in and out of Sisters Oregon so you know so often doing you know dozens of projects around the world that they bought the airport so now they own the airport in the city <laughs> And so, you know, that's an example. They, they're they amazing people with high skill levels uh, using techn- the same technology that's eliminating jobs to create jobs for themselves in places they want to live. Another couple, uh, they live in northern Idaho up on a beautiful ridge overlooking a river, and they decided they wanted to raise their three kids there. So the couple moved there, and again, now they have to figure out what to do. And uh, Gail Williams, the the mom had had a lot of experience sewing seats uh cushions and so on and she went to the sun valley ski resort and said let me redo all of your tower pads and your you know your lift pads and she got that contract and so they started a company called idaho sewing for sports they've now done the chairlift pads for 600 ski resorts worldwide out of this little town in in idaho And, you know, on and on and on, we found a guy, Gary Delp, in Missoula, Montana, that tears down old barns and buildings and bridges and retreats the wood and sells it to build high-end homes and cabins and restaurants and so on. And we found a guy, a retired Air Force pilot that takes sightseeing trips up and down the West Coast in an old 1944 World War II biplane. We, We just found some amazing people that you just never hear about. Well, those
0: are—they're all fascinating stories. Uh, and the, here's the thing I want to—I want to get at next—is you never know what you're going to find. Right now, an example of someone sewing for sports, or, or using reclaimed wood, uh, or doing tourism on on old biplanes. I mean, that—those sound like relatively expected entrepreneurial type adventures. It's doing what you love and where you live and all that. Now, building biogas power plants is is not what I suspect most people listening were expecting <laughs> you to talk about. But that therein lies the whole point of this, right? Is there's so, there's almost limitless possibility here for, for, that you can do virtually anything. And then, as you say, as you create a new market, well, then oh well, I guess we have to create software that actually executes this. And and oh, shoot, we, mean, I get, we might need to buy the airport to help support what we're doing. I mean. That's the beauty and power of this is, is that you, you don't have to create Facebook or Apple or Google. You can do almost anything,
1: right? Yeah, and that was our conclusion at the end of this, you know, long tour when we had all these media interviews of, you know, what did you learn? We just, we really, we're, we're not just saying this. We we saw so many incredible people build the neatest, smaller, and even medium-sized companies that we were just convinced that this is doable, that you can do it. There is a process It's not in your genes or your DNA. It's a set of practices you implement in a marketplace, and if you follow those practices sequentially, you can build a business and take care of yourself. It's what we've done our whole existence in the world until just the last few decades when corporate America sprung up and people are now out looking for jobs. We're looking for people to hire, give us money, and pay us, but we never did that before.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I think another important
0: idea here to push hard is this idea. I mean, we talked earlier about there's there's a lot of pessimism. Oh, okay, robots are taking away all the jobs and this there's going to be on a high unemployment. And all. There is still so much opportunity out there. I mean, I'm looking out my window. I'm on the 48th floor of a high-rise in Chicago, and I just see building after building Full of people doing amazing things, full full of powerful and very realistic dreams. I mean, that you can't you have to be to opti- you have to be optimistic here because there there are never been there's never been a better time to actually do something like this, right? I mean, it, the opportunities are endless. The tools that are now available to to virtually anyone, and most of them free or certainly very inexpensive, it's not hard to kind of launch one of these things, right?
1: Yeah, I. You know, I think anytime there's crisis, there's opportunity. Right. Uh, e- equal amounts of opportunity, and and I've been, you know, consulting with startups, hundreds of startups for more than 20 years, and I can tell you, there's never been a better time or an easier time to start a business than right now. And the reason for that is you mentioned that all the uh, sophisticated technologies and tools are available to anyone. Where at uh, one time only large corporations could afford these things now we all have desktop publishing and computers and satellites and we have everything that we need to you know build a business and it's not real expensive we also have the ability to reach international markets we just did a, a webinar this morning and all of the people were in Nigeria that mm. were uh, listening to us and wanting to buy our training programs. And so we can reach markets all over the world. Uh, we can test things quickly and see if they are going to work. And if not, we move on to something else. We have uh, crowdfunding. It's easier to get funding. Uh, we we actually have done two Kickstarter campaigns, uh, one for this bike ride, which we raised uh, nearly $30,000 quickly in 30 days It funded the entire research project. And we just closed another Kickstarter campaign for $30,000 to turn all these interviews into a full-length documentary film. And so, I mean, it's just easier to to get money and to test things and to see if people want them. And then probably one of the most important things is there's a real movement towards buying from small businesses. Mm, Uh, It's kind of a backlash against the big corporation, the big box store. All the surveys that are done, public opinion surveys, people really like and want to buy from smaller companies. They want personalized service. They want high-touch to counteract the high tech. And so, you know, small businesses, if they're done really well, are in favor right now.
0: Well, that's really important. So if you're listening to that, understand they're in line. We talked earlier, there is opportunity here. And, and that is certainly feeding that. And that there is, there is a thirst and there is a hunger to interact with and work with ventures and organizations of this ilk, just because for, ah, for all the reasons you said so so don't sit there and say oh this is a space that a large enterprise is going to play in and and no because there is a backlash I don't know. Backlash is the right word, but there's this idea that I would rather work with with a smaller organization with well-meaning people that that they're not just there for a paycheck. They're there trying to build something very meaningful and do it in a very positive, you know, oftentimes sustainable kind of way. All right. Well, gosh, we're running low on time, but we have got to get into a very important conversation here. and that, through all of this research and all these interviews and this. Bike ride across the United States, uh, you came up with pretty much nine keys to build your own business. And so we could talk for another hour on these, but if, I guess maybe the easiest thing to do is, is to have you run through as quickly as you can those nine keys, and, and I may ask you a question or two about a few of them.
1: All right. Yeah. The first thing that we noticed, and again, we were, uh, you know, we had our eyes wide open, we didn't have any preconceived notions. And the first thing we noticed that these people were very purpose driven they were engaged in something that they were absolutely on fire about. They were doing something they were passionate about. They were solving a problem that interests them. They were creating jobs in their town. One one guy's his mission was to create 100 jobs in Baker City, Oregon. That's why he was doing it. And none of them mentioned money. Oh, I need money, so I created a business to make money. But they were doing something they really, really loved and wanted to do. And I think that driving engaging purpose really gets you through the ups and downs of the startup and the three to five years it takes to produce cash flow so that's the first thing we noticed we also noticed that they were all building on something that they knew a lot about uh, none of them had started a business in an area where they knew nothing about they about a third of them had worked in the industry another third had worked in the related industry probably 30% of them or more, uh, were users, serious users of the products. They knew all the products. They knew all the manufacturers. They were buying them. They were taking them apart. They were putting them back together. They they knew the industry from the customer's perspective, even though they hadn't worked in the industry. Another one, they, which was pretty amazing, they they really didn't take any big risks. They they launched what we call a true business opportunity rather than an idea. They worked the idea, and they talked to consumers in their marketplace, and they didn't launch their company until they had people that were ready to buy the product or even bought the product before they launched it. So they had purchase orders. They knew they had customers. They knew they had cash flow, and then they launched the company. So they didn't just you know spend a lot of time, a lot of money building products and then just say, hey, do you think anyone will buy these? I hope so. But they worked closely with a group, a community of co- consumers. And those people said, yeah, that's exactly what we need. It's missing. You do it, we'll buy it from you. Yeah. Fact, when, will it, when will it be ready? So the risk was reduced.
0: Yeah. See, that's, um, I think that's one, of the, that's one of the clear lines of where people fail as an entrepreneur is that they really do just try to promote an idea as opposed to what you call as an opportunity. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a clear demarcation between a successful and an unsuccessful entrepreneur, right?
1: Yeah. The, the failure rate's 50-50. And if you launch an idea, you'll fail. And if you launch an opportunity where you have industry experience, you have evidence that people need the product, you have people saying they'll buy it as soon as it's ready, then that's an opportunity. And the book talks in a lot more detail about what a true opportunity is. And if you build your idea to the point that it meets these standards and then you launch it, we think your success rate's 80 90%. Wow. But a couple others, they you know, they were really fabulous at networking and building brain trusts. They weren't afraid to call and talk to anybody about anything they needed help with. They would create a lot of win-win relationships. They would say, hey, let me take you to lunch once a month. I'll buy it, and then what can I do for you? But they weren't afraid to learn about manufacturing and technology and UPC codes in food. They, they weren't afraid to call and build this brain trust. They built these communities of customers uh, – they gave them service way beyond what was expected and actually included the customers in the development of their product line. So those customers kind of felt like this is our business too. For example, a group of guys, they started a company called Power Practical, and they created this cooking pot. You put on a you know, fire, and it actually charges your MP3 player and your cell phone out in the woods. <laughs> Very and they, cool. And they've now created six products, but they, they have their customer base tell them what they want and how to build it, and they give them feedback on it, and they tweak it and revise it based on this group of buyers that just, they just love them. And so they don't, you know, they're not competing, they're not having to play the, you know, the price wars game and compete and manipulate, you know, customers, they have customers that love them that buy whatever they make. And it's that exceeding expectations and including customers in the business. Now, one that was pretty fascinating was this multiple streams of revenue. We talked about, you know, the Benson's, they're not just doing one thing. They're designing the plants, they're building the plants, they're monitoring the plants. And so the, you know, the ticket per customer goes up dramatically. If you have a group of customers that love you, you say, what else are they buying? Where are they buying it? And can I provide that just as easily to solve their problem in a one stop shop? And so they were adding buying real estate, buying the, you know, the airport, adding other products customers needed. But, uh, you know, they'd have a portfolio of products, which reduce the vulnerability of a single product line pretty much all of them
0: yeah and that's critical when you're talking about this coming employment crisis right diversifying your portfolio is how i kind of immediately thought of that but that does provide you extra cover in this this changing economy right
1: yeah absolutely yeah and they kind of looked at their product line as, you know, like a stock portfolio. I'm going to maximize the things that have the best opportunity, and I'm not going to hang on to things that are dying. If it's a bad stock, I'm going to dump it, you know. Right. So they were very willing to change and innovate and add new things and drop things. And then the last thing that really, really impressed us is, you know, the the venture back model, Silicon Valley model is to scale up quickly and have an exit strategy and get, you know, 10x return for your investors and make, you know, millions of dollars over five years. And not a single person had an exit strategy we interviewed. They were in a town they loved, they were there to stay, and they were heavily involved in serving that community in some way. So they were giving back, they were teaching in the schools, they were, you know, donating uniforms to the pep club and buying instruments for the band. And uh, the Bensons, the energy founders, they actually built a power plant for the school in town, they build it and they manage it. And so they were just heavily involved in the community because they loved the community. It wasn't a strategy, but what happens is over time the community says, geez, this company supports us. Let's support this company, and they mm. built this really wonderful relationship between the city and the business. And so that was – it was really inspiring to us to see that there's a different way to do business, that we can build communities and that business and community members can work together. And that we can have more satisfying lifestyles in our work.
0: Well, you mentioned earlier in the show that a lot of these people that you interacted with they weren't they didn't do this to, to to make money. Yeah, they're earning a living and they're paying a mortgage, perhaps. Uh, but but that wasn't the pr- principal reason why they did this. And 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 your nine keys to success are bookended by very unbusinesslike like things. One is started with a purpose and then you close by serving the community. And and I think those are I, I, I'm optimistic that where our work sector is changing is that they're they're now realizing that is where the gold is under the rainbow is, is this this working for a purpose. I think that's why a lot of millennials are job hoppers, because they're trying to land in an organization that has a purpose, that has a real meaning of serving humanity and mankind. And so I love the idea of, of that being a key to success is this idea of, of giving back to the community and serving. I, most of us haven't built a power plant for the
1: local school.
0: <laughs> I, have meet, I have to meet this company. Goodness, the, what an intriguing story that must have been. But, uh, but that's, you can't do this. I don't think the modern, in my view, this is Todd's opinion, the, the modern entrepreneur I don't think works if you're not really bookending what you do around purpose and service.
1: Yeah, it's really, it's a lot of intangibles. It's not, it's almost not sophisticated enough for my academic colleagues. It's you find something you really want to do. You work hard, you give back, you have a lot of passion. But the, you know, the work ethic, the thing is one of the main things. These people work really, really hard and they work long days and long hours. and But it's not a drudgery because they're doing something they love. And, uh, but they're just very, they have a lot of integrity. I'll tell you this last story real quick. We just interviewed a woman. In Washington, D.C., her name is Engazi Opara, and she started a company called Heat Free Hair, and she had a you know, a salon cutting hair while she was going to school, and then she got a degree in finance and, and went and worked at a hedge fund, and she just hated it. But she loved her salon and working with women, and she realized that most of her African-American women clients couldn't find wigs or hair extensions that matched the color of their hair or the thickness of their hair. So she uh, went to work and created some prototypes and got a company in China to make some wigs with you know darker thicker hair. She came back and sold a thousand of them immediately and uh, everything went great for a week or two and then after three weeks she started getting calls that all the products she sold were defective. They didn't work. So the women were saying, you know these are falling apart. I hate this, I want my money back and you know a lot of people would have quit, but she said, I'm gonna fix this problem. I know there's a need here. I'm sorry give me some time. And she actually moved to China and moved into a dormitory in a hair production facility and worked as a laborer for six months to learn how to make wigs and hair extensions (laughs) and uh, came back now with a fabulous product. And when we interviewed her a few weeks ago, she had you know, uh, made good with all our former customers and had sold 6,000 more of these products. So See, Mike,
0: that story is why I'm optimistic about where this is all going and why I am not afraid of this new economy and this radical change in how we do business from these large enterprises to these small entrepreneurs. I mean, it's that kind of passion and that kind of fervor and belief in what she's doing. I mean, that's, that's what fuels me and says, this is this is going to turn out not just okay. This is going to be the most exciting time to be in business.
1: Yeah, yeah. If I, you know, I go give a talk at a, a conference an acting conference, and you know, I say after looking at hundreds and hundreds of stories here, you need a strong purpose, you need passion, you need a great work ethic, you need to care about your customers, you can need to build a community, and those are the most important things. It's just not sophisticated enough, you know? And so the book was really designed to help everyday men and women like me and you want some independence, want financial security, to to basically walk them through the steps. It's a roadmap to help, you know, anyone do it, me do it, you do it, all the people that are listening do it. And it was just a, a fabulous experience to gather the data and to write the book. Mm. Uh, well gosh uh we're we're way beyond my time on this episode of,
0: uh, we could keep I mean, we could do hours on these nine keys uh, <laughs> and i'm sure you have dozens and dozens of, of just as intriguing stories as that uh, lady in washington and certainly my favorite the biogas uh, power plant manufacturers that's just that's just a fascinating story mike uh like I said, when you do the second book and go on the next tour, let me know. I may uh, <laughs> I may be live broadcasting <laughs> along with you. So before I let you go, uh, where can people, how can they contact you? Should they have any questions? Where can they learn about the work you're doing at the Center for Entrepreneurship? And most importantly, where can they get their hands on a copy of Main Street Entrepreneur?
1: The book's for sale on Amazon and all the websites, and it's in bookstores as well. My personal website is mikeglauser.com. You can read all about the book. You can see a lot of free videos, free content of some of the people we interviewed. And the the project, the actual project website is themainstreetentrepreneur.com. So you can see more films. You can see the book. You can see the documentary that we're producing right now. You know, like I said, most of our content is free. People use it all across the country to, to get inspired and use it in classrooms. And we hope you enjoy it, too. Well, that documentary will be very cool. I look forward to hearing more about that.
0: Mike Glauser, entrepreneur, business consultant, university professor, and author of the new book, Main Street Entrepreneur, Build Your Dream Company, Doing What You Love Where You Live. Mike, a real pleasure to have you. Thanks again for stopping by.
1: Thanks so much, Todd. It was my pleasure. My
0: pleasure was mine. All right. All the time we have for today, again, on behalf of my guest, Mike Glauser, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you very soon on Intrepid Radio. Thank you for listening to Intrepid Media. We appreciate your attention. To receive everything we do, simply go to intrepidmailinglist.com. That's intrepidmailinglist.com and sign up. You can also find us at intrepid.media and on iTunes. And to support the important work we do on your behalf, a rating and review on iTunes will help spread our work far and wide. Again, we certainly appreciate your support. Now, get out there, be intrepid, and we'll see you next time.